and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Susie Dennison. I'm the director of ECFR's European Power Programme and I'm standing in for our usual host, Mark Leonard, this week. So today we're going to be talking about EU-Turkey relations in the context of the Biden-Erdogan meeting earlier this week, as well as the upcoming EU Council meeting later this month, which will address Turkey. We'll zoom in on a potential close cooperation on the European Green Deal and in this context also discuss the proposal for the Carbon Border Adjustment Tax, or CBAM, that the EU wants to introduce. I'm really happy to welcome Asli Aydin Taspas, the Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR and our in-house expert on Turkey, as well as Simone Talia Petra, Senior Fellow at Bruegel, focusing on European Union climate and energy policy. And he's also written a lot about the economic dimensions of the EU-Turkey relationship. Thank you both very much for joining. So, this feels like an important moment in the EU-US-Turkey triangle. After a number of difficult years with the EU struggling to exercise any leverage in the relationship, since the start of this year, there seems to be a certain thawing in tensions, so forget not, notwithstanding. So, Asli, you started the year with a piece for the ECFR site on EU-Turkey relations entitled Low Expectations. Could you kick us off by telling us where you feel we are now after the Biden-Erdogan meeting this week? Thanks, Susie. Well, Turkey is a challenge for Europe. Several years ago, I think it was either last year, early last year, I think, Borrell, Joseph Borrell mentioned Turkey as one of the top challenges. I believe he said top, in fact, uh, for the European Union in terms of the neighborhood and the broader strategic uh, challenges Europe faced. Obviously, we know all the topics and the agenda, migration, the diplomatic roles, Turkey's departure from EU norms, a more an accession process that's pretty much dead, but also East Med. So East Med and the escalation. Last year, we almost had a situation where kinetic confrontation between an EU member state, be it France or Greece, and Turkey was a possibility. People had started planning for that. But what a difference a year makes. We are in a very different place. The escalation has started, I would say, end of last year and has been a constant feature. Uh, De-escalation, this is a low bar, of course, Turkey pulling back its vessels and everything. But At the end of the day, German diplomacy and intermediation seems to have worked. Biden administration's, the the, the arrival of Biden administration in itself seems to have led some of the regional players on Turkey to some type of a course correction. And we are at a place right now where Europe and the U.S. want to turn a page. Now, this is not a honeymoon nor is it a a renewal of the vows between Turkey and the West, but it is a fresh page in the sense that I think this week when Erdogan met, was at the NATO summit, invited for the first time in years to sort of a a person-to-person meeting with uh, Western leaders, met with uh, several of them, met with Macron, with Uh whom he had exchanged some kind words over this past year, and met with uh, Joe Biden. After a bit of six months of cold shouldering by the Biden administration. And the result is that people are trying to turn a page. And it seems that Turkey is trying to turn a page into what? Into a stable relationship 
I think a positive. I think positive is too strong a word for now, but a stable and predictable relationship whereby the differences are still there, but they're not getting out of hand. But more importantly, I think both with Europe and with the U.S., there's sort of this desire to increase areas of cooperation. So we solve the differences right now for with U.S. It's things like S400 with with Europe. It's other things. But let's focus on four or five areas where we can work together. That's where we seem to be. And you're talking to us from Turkey this morning, I think, after several weeks uh, looking at all of this from, from the U.S., Is your sense that in in terms of thinking in Ankara that there's a a level of satisfaction with the way that the discussions have have, have gone this week? Ankara is very happy. They've been preparing for this Biden meeting. Uh, uh, They've been uh, sort of nervous and, you know, anticipating a tough meeting. Uh, Instead, they were not really hugely pressed on human rights and uh, the issues uh, that have been more mediagenic in Turkish-US relationship, even though I think President Biden seems to have made a general plea for Turkey's return to Western norms. Instead, the the highlight of the meeting, instead of things like human rights and S-400, the more contentious issues, the highlight of the meeting seems to be Turkey's decision and this is a smart one in terms of it normalizing its relations with the West, Turkey's decision to send troops to Afghanistan after U.S. withdrawal. This is obviously very important. It's altogether new uh, agenda item in, in this trilateral relationship. But as you know, U.S. troops are pulling out. Mm-hmm. With that, uh, Europeans are pulling out more or less. And people are worried about a Taliban take a rapid Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. And all of a sudden, Turkey step in and saying, I can keep the Kabul airport open. I can send peacekeepers is very important for even for the optics of yeah. what's happening in Afghanistan. Yeah. But in Washington, what I saw was uh, for, for, for a long time, there was a Turkey fatigue, people rolling their eyes, cold shouldering. Turkey is not very important in our lar- broader strategic goals. It's not the same, et cetera, et cetera. But all of a sudden, I wouldn't say people are once again happy to work with Turkey, but I would put yeah. it this way. they They are keen to see where they can increase their differences. And they realize that Turkey is in a in sort of a mood to make concessions. Yeah. So that's my impression from Washington. From Washington. And Ankara is very keen to, to sort of have some type of uh, recognition of its place in the West. Yeah. Uh, they realize that this has been costing Turkey and Erdogan in terms of uh, the, Turkey's economic situation, but also international standing. They don't want to reverse course entirely, certainly not on domestic politics and uh, the sort of uh, more authoritarian drive, but I think they want to do what they can to mend this relationship. So these are, yeah. before I leave it to you and Simone, maybe these are very interesting challenges for Europe. Yeah. So, so Simona, maybe we can turn to you now, as as he's actually painted quite a positive picture um, of of where things are. But the other thing which is looming into perspective in EU-Turkey relations is the potential impact of the European Green Deal, on particularly on the trade and energy relationship between the EU and Turkey. And this external dimension of the Green Deal is something that you and and colleagues at Bruegel and ECFR wrote about earlier this year in, in your paper, The Geopolitics of the Green Deal. So do you see what's coming in the legislative package that we're all expecting on Bastille Day? 
on on the fit for fifty five package. Do you see this having a major impact on um, the, the the sort of uh, the positive the picture of potential that that Asley has painted for us? Well, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, uh, the picture that uh, has been painted so far is indeed very positive. Uh, to be honest, I'm not so sure uh, about uh, uh, you know the perspective about uh, this relationship in Brussels because uh, uh, the last years have been clearly very difficult and. Uh, I see uh, very difficult elements to to remain at the, in the table, actually. So we need to to see if uh, there will be at the end a positive uh, step further, because we have been discussing now for several years about a positive agenda between the EU and Turkey, but uh, actually little progress uh, was was achieved. And as it was mentioned, uh, tensions last year. Uh, really erupted uh, in a very strong manner in the in the waters of the of the East Med. So energy and climate have traditionally, let's say, been considered as being part or uh, fundamental ingredient of uh, a potential positive agenda. And uh, when thinking about uh, potential cooperation prospects in this field, one immediately tends to think about the cooperation on issues such as renewable energy and, uh, and energy efficiency. Of course, in the past, uh, and I would say up to the recent past, uh, natural gas was also uh, very important in these discussions. Uh, we know that Turkey has had a very long-lasting uh, project or vision, I would say, of uh, becoming a sort of regional gas hub, a vision that uh, did not uh, really, uh, at the end, find ways to materialize since uh, the the Southern Gas Corridor, so the, the good old Nabucco project from uh, Central Asia, Iran, etc., to bring gas uh, through Turkey to Europe, uh, basically only materialized in a very small scale manner, which is the current TANAPTAP infrastructure. There is no space uh, to, to expand that in the future because Europe will not require additional volumes of gas in the future, as we have also said in that paper you mentioned. Therefore, gas is not there in the in the cooperation agenda, I think, strongly anymore. What is important is indeed the renewable energy cooperation and, I would say, the potential to cooperate on green hydrogen that is becoming a very important item for the European energy transition and more generally for the relationship between Europe and the neighborhood. So Europe and also, of course, uh, individual countries such as Germany, for example, are already moving quite uh, importantly with countries in the neighborhood to try to establish this green hydrogen cooperation prospects because there is a recognition in Europe that we will not in the EU be able to produce all the renewable energy and green hydrogen we will need to reach our climate neutrality target by 2050. So some of these will have to come from outside and the neighborhood, also given the rich renewable energy natural endowment of countries around the EU, can really play an important role. And this would be beneficial for all because it would entail uh, trade, it would entail uh, increased economic relationship. Now, today, as we know, everybody looks at another item of this of cooperation agenda, which is, uh, of course, the item of carbon border adjustment. And uh, the way this is looked at in the neighborhood in general and in Turkey, I think, in particular, is with great degree of concern. 
because the idea is okay now Europe will uh, sooner or later add carbon tax uh, at the border and uh, our products will be therefore taxed uh, in Europe on the basis of the carbon contents which will put our industry in a, a competitive uh, disadvantage now i think that uh, this discussion on cbam is getting uh, a little bit uh, uh, emotional in a way that because people tend to you know also talk about this issue without uh, understanding the technicalities and uh, the, the real size of this measure so just to give you an example uh, the measure will be unveiled in in mid july but we have uh, some leaked drafts uh, out of the commission and uh, we need to consider that uh, at least up to 2026 the measure will only cover 2% of the european imports now i understand the excitement about uh, this uh, novel form of policy because this is, this would be actually the first time that a country uh, introduces uh, uh, carbon border adjustment but if you take it from a turkish perspective well certainly European, the European Union is the main export market for Turkey, but uh, that export is made mainly of machineries, around 24 billion per year, I think, and clothing, 8 billion per year. The agricultural raw materials represent the uh, more niche part of the Turkish export to, to euro, which are still important, 3 billion of steel, one, 100 million of uh, cement exports, uh, uh, value of exports per year, but uh, nothing really... Uh, so seizable as the other the other yeah. item. these are the goods that will ultimately be subjected to cbam at least by up to 2026 therefore the impact on turkey in my view will be rather rather little and therefore i don't really see uh, this as an element of complexity i think uh, we need to focus on the positive dimension of the cooperation which is as i said renewable energy and green hydrogen in which we can really mobilize trade and uh, investments Thanks a lot um, for bringing us on to the, the leaked CBAM proposal. And uh, I, I'm an avid follower of yours on Twitter, and I've seen that you've been doing some thinking about this, this particular level of the proposal. At TCFR, we've been looking a little bit at what you describe as the emotion around this, this policy idea. And it's, it's very clear that the exact design um, of the CBAM is, is, is very critical to European member states in terms of their, their support um, for the overall external dimension of, of the Green Deal package. And so we can expect, I think, um, a lot of difficult conversations once the proposal's on the table with member states about sort of how um, exactly that, that ends up looking. What's your take on, on the, the, whether this is just a sort of a, a throat clearing proposal to, to sort of to start the conversation or whether what, we, what we've seen now is, is what we will end up with in terms of the level of ambition in the CBAM? Uh, well, in my view, the, the Commission has been focusing so far on uh, building up uh, the institutional setting. So, as I said, this is the first time that uh, any bloc really introduces this measure. It is complex. Uh, and I think the Commission has done a great work in thinking about uh, the practicalities of uh, this policy tool. Now, what is lacking in the proposal, in my view so far, is ambition. The proposal only covers 2% of the European imports. So it's like building up, you know, a super 
supercomputer to run on it uh, simply uh, Microsoft Office. It doesn't make any sense. So if you have uh, such such a tool, then you need to use it uh, at the right scale. So my hope is that uh, the, the co-legislators, if this will be uh, the final proposal, the co-legislator during the negotiations that will come of the next uh, couple of years, basically, will work to expand the, the coverage of CBAM, not only to the list, the limited list of selected goods that currently is in the proposal, but really to other goods. Because the, the issue here is that CBAM to work should quickly cover all imports into, into Europe. This is the first element. The second element is uh, how do we manage the issue of developing countries and in particular least developing nations? Currently, there are no exemptions for these least developed countries. And I think there should be exemptions for least developing countries because this would really reinforce the fitting of this proposal with the uh, principle of commons, but differentiated responsibilities on climate change, which really is the foundation of the Paris Agreement. And we need also to make an attentive use of the revenues. For example, I would be in favor of not using the revenues of CBAM just to, uh, you know, for the purpose of the EU general budget, but use the revenues of CBAM to prompt up climate finance, which means uh, all the financing that Europe provides to countries outside of Europe and notably in the developing world to accelerate the green transition in these countries. This would be the best way to show that CBAM is about Climate change is about ensuring level playing field once Europe is really scaling up its carbon price, etc. And it's not about a trade, let's say, protectionist measure. That is absolutely not the nature of this of this policy. Yeah. Asli, c- could I come back to you? Simone has talked about this idea of um, a focus on the political dimensions of cooperation between the EU and Turkey and this idea um, of, of the Renewable Energy Partnership. This is also something that you and I have been kicking around thinking about the EU, Turkey and the Green Deal. And I'm, I'm interested in, in whether you think that, that there is you know, potential space to, to push this idea further um, in, in EU-Turkey relations whether this is something that we might expect to see more on in the European Council conclusions later this month. Well, Susie, I think this is the right moment to talk about our upcoming paper, which is very much on this topic, on whether or not Turkey and Europe can work together on climate change, and in particular on the European Green Deal. And obviously this is both a technical and a political issue. But on the technical level, what we're expecting from the upcoming customs union, sorry, from the upcoming European Union Council. (laughs) Pardon? Freudian slip. Freudian slip (laughs) is exactly, upcoming council meeting is, is an indication that Turkey's existing free trade agreement with Europe, the customs union that is, is to be upgraded uh, or modernized. Uh, Turkey is, of course, in a unique place here, different from other neighboring countries. Uh, One, it has a, a large production base and is a big economy. Secondly, it has a very European-friendly, pro-Western and sophisticated business community. Thirdly, I think Turkey has been in accession talks. We forget about it about it sometimes, but it, it is technically speaking still a candidate country, although we know that it's not going anywhere, that whole process. 
But along the way, Turkey has been able to change, upgrade uh, many of its uh, laws and legislation in line with EU acquis and has an, a free trade agreement with Europe. That needs to be upgraded. Now, let me come to the political part of that question. With so much problem yeah. in the Turkish-European relationship, that whole aspect, that whole question of whether or not to modernize this trade deal has been seen in the context of, you know, the, the tensions in the Turkish-EU relationship. It, would that be essentially a reward for the uh, government here after years of sort of inward-looking policies, departure from EU norms? Would that be, is that a leverage Europe should give away? And there's always been a human rights component of this question in the uh, debate, even among the member states, even as, la- as late as the March uh, EU Council conclusions in the run-up to that, there were some member states who felt that no, customs union upgrade is not a good idea because that's exactly rewarding President Erdogan for his uh, assertive stance, for lack of a better word. <laughs> towards you. But then others are saying, well, you know, carrot and stick, yes, but Turkey has, seems to be pursuing a stable course, wants to improve relations. Let's take this positive step with the hope that it will actually result in course correction both on both sides in our relationship, but also return us to a structured new relationship. And and we are actually, in our upcoming paper, you and I have argued, this was uh, originally your idea, and I was happy to take part in it, not knowing that much about climate change or the European Green Deal, but learning along the way. We are... I think we've both been learning. (laughs) Coming out and saying, well, look, this climate action, climate leadership, European leadership on the climate issue, first of all... um, It is in line with Europe's own strategic autonomy and interests, uh, perhaps complementary to the Biden administration's efforts, but distinct. And secondly, let's separate this from the human rights agenda, Turkey, you know, the normative uh, relationship with Turkey. This is neither a reward nor a legitimization of anything. It is important that a country on Europe's doorstep start its transition towards green economy. And in that, in our interviews with business community and and various Turkish stakeholders, it was very clear that there is a demand on the business side to be in on the European Green Deal, largely because they feel like this is what would make Turkey competitive. Europe is Turkey's top, top sort of trading partner. This is what would make Turkish economy competitive in the short run, in the medium term. And also, you know, there's the sort of faint idea of wanting to replace China in the production chain. And Turkey is well positioned to be able to do that. And I think that they're also seeing this as a return, a possible return to sort of a rules-based engagement of in the economy, uh, you know, Turkey's business community also seems to be troubled by the the sort of departure from norms and rules and regulations when it comes to Turkey's economic prospects. So I think that they welcome EU leverage and a, a dialogue, and if not a sort of a, a more structured new framework on the European Green Deal.
Yeah. Simone, maybe last word to you um, briefly. Do you do you subscribe to this idea that, that Asli's put forward of the sort of the, a potential model of European climate leadership sort of being built out of um, relationships like the EU-Turkey relationship in, in the neighbourhood and sort of out of uh, the economic, well as obviously political leverage um, that, that we have with other players closer to home? Well, in my view, Europe needs to have a pragmatic agenda in this field. So the main issues will certainly be uh, relating to uh, the, the current exporters of energy to Europe. And I think about Algeria, etc. So these countries that are at risk of profound destabilization um, macroeconomically but also politically uh, once uh, uh, the revenues of oil and gas will not be there anymore in the future. So the first priority I think for the European Green Deal foreign policy agenda should be to work with these countries to ensure that uh, there will be stability even when uh, oil and gas will not be consumed anymore. Then, certainly, uh, the, the green agenda could be also used in a positive manner with a country like Turkey. But again, one has to have an, a realistic take there and consider that uh, the, the, the national policies of Turkey so far have been not so aligned with a strong green agenda and uh, uh, there are many issues starting with the utilization of coal that needs to be tackled. Uh, I think technological developments are supportive in bringing a change in these attitudes because we have seen how much uh, renewables are becoming competitive and can therefore provide a viable solution also commercially to established sources which are typically seen as domestic sources that can cut Turkey's reliance on external suppliers for example of gas and here I would like to mention one specific issue in which Europe can provide a great added value in my view to the Turkish green transition which is lowering the cost of capital. If mm -hmm. there is one thing that prevents the uptake of renewable energy in a country like Turkey is the cost of capital because renewables are extremely capital intensive, these investments are upfront and therefore this plays a very important role in the investment decisions with yeah. the support of the European Investment Bank on the EBRD and the similar or national uh, institutions in Europe, there can really be a trigger to foster private investments into the Turkish renewable energy system. And again, Turkey is perfectly placed for renewables, both in terms of, uh, of wind potential, in terms yeah. of solar potential. And therefore, I think this will be extremely beneficial for both. Thank you very much for, for both that, that, that general point and also a very concrete um, idea. I'm afraid we're going to have to draw it to a close there because there's obviously loads more we could dig into. There's just one more thing that we, that we still need to do, and that's our bookshelf section. I myself want to recommend the papers that we've been discussing, including Europe's Green Moment, How to Meet the Climate Challenge by myself, Raphael Loss and Jenny Soderstrom, The Geopolitics of the Green Deal by an all-star all Bruegel and ECF cast, including Simone Italia Petra, who we've been talking to today. And please also do look out on the ECFR site next week for a paper by Asli Aydin Tashbas and myself on EU, Turkey and the Green Deal. We, you'll find it there um, as of 22nd. So Asli, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, Susie, I have been reading The Life of Katerina the Great. This is not a new book by Robert Macy. It's been around for a while. I remember picking it up several years ago, but uh, not finishing it. So I picked it up again. Of course, what's 
always very interesting is to, for me, is to, you know, zone in on the Turkish-Russian dynamic, going going back historic or po- Polish-Russian dynamic. So yeah. it's both very entertaining, but also provides some insight about what's happening, some context, yes, yeah. uh, about what's happening today. That's fascinating. And Simone, what about you? What are you reading? Well, currently on my desk, uh, there is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. It's a book by Michael E. Mann, in which the author makes uh, a very strong uh, case for, yes, uh, of course, focusing on behavioral change and asking citizens uh, to, to also contribute to climate action by changing their behavior, etc. But the case here is, at the end of the day, what will really matters is what the governments will bring about in terms of change and notably vis-a-vis the private sector investment. So is a, a big call to governments to do the job and then citizens to support, but we cannot invert the order and think that citizens alone can deliver the green transition. So this is really a call for against the ones that want to procrastinate action and is a, is a call to have an urgent action in basically shifting the big investment flows that are redesigning and can redesign our economy and our energy systems. Great. And I think that's the perfect note for us to finish on. Thank you. So if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or elsewhere. But above all, please do give us a good rating and review on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. We'll put a link to all the publications that we've mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Asli Aydin Tasbas, Simone Italia Petra, and myself, Susie Dennison, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast was Lucy Halpenthal, and the editor of this episode is Marlena Riedel.